0: Hello and welcome to The Rewriters, a celebration of people who have shirked convention, expectation and even their own limitation to rewrite their story on their terms. Each episode, we'll dig into the inspired and very real-life stories of people who have done just that, rewritten their story. I'm a nosy practical optimist too, so expect all of the nitty-gritty details. If you're an ambitious seeker craving a different kind of lifestyle, career or business, but have felt held back by your own or other people's beliefs about what's possible or permissible, The Rewriter's is for you. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I've got a pretty special one for you today and it's a topic that's quite personal to me. It's about alcohol and more specifically how for some of us, myself included, our relationship with alcohol can or has held us back and gotten in the way of what we really want from our life. I'm joined in this conversation by Izzy McLean, a transformational coach and the founder of The Hole of the Moon. And she works with women to help them make the changes that they want to see in their lives. And one of her key programs is dedicated specifically to women wanting a more positive relationship with alcohol. Izzy says she spent the first four decades letting life happen to her until she woke up and personal circumstances conspired to make her realize that she alone was responsible for making the most out of her one life. And this deceptively simple realization, she said, has continued to have a profound effect on the way that she lives, the way that she loves and the way that she works. Driven by her desire to understand and get a handle on her own relationship with alcohol, she spent many, many years studying the science and practice of behavior change before training as a transformational coach and resigning from her leadership position in education to start her own coaching practice. Now she's on a mission to share what she learned and to help other women make those changes that they want to see in their lives too during this conversation, Izzy and I share the reasons why we each decided to reassess our own relationships with alcohol and where we're at in our own journeys. Now, neither Izzy or I would have described ourselves as big problem drinkers, but the point was it just wasn't working for us anymore. And for many people, not knowing where we fit in the is it a problem or isn't it a problem spectrum can really hold us back. So this episode was created for anyone who has a niggle that it just might not be working for them. I really want you to know that you're not alone and if it's not working for you, that is enough of a reason to reassess. It really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks or what anyone else does. I also want to underline a point that neither myself or Izzy are trained in addiction therapies and this conversation is not a substitute for addiction care or support. So please don't treat this as expert advice. It's simply two women sharing their stories in the hope that it will provide some comfort for anyone who might need it. Now, if you would like to find out more about Izzy's fantastic work or to join one of her programs, I will link to all of those in the show notes. And if you'd like to connect with me, the best way to do that is by signing up to my newsletter, The Weekly Rewrite. It's out each Wednesday and in it I share tools, insights and stories to help you create a work life that you love. It's also the first place to get the latest episodes of The Rewriter's Podcast too. If you enjoy this episode, please do let me know by sharing it on social media, hashtag The Rewriters Pod. I'm at the underscore rewriters on Instagram. Give it a five stars on Apple Podcasts. And please, please, please share this episode with anyone you know who might need to hear it. Okay, on with the episode. Izzy, welcome to The Rewriters.
1: Thank you, Monique. I am so excited to be here because as you know, I'm a huge fan of your amazing podcast.
0: Oh, thank you. And I am so excited, A, to have you here. Um, but B to be talking about this topic. This is a topic that I haven't spoken about so openly before. Um, and it's something that is really important to me, clearly really important to you, but I think really empowerful, really empowerful, really powerful for a lot of people potentially as well. So I'm gonna dive straight in. Uh, but before we do, I just wanted to ask you if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself um, to the listeners the way that you like to be introduced. Okay, I'm Izzy McLean.
1: I am a life coach and a mental fitness coach. And I feel really passionate about helping people get to a place where they're able to live their very best lives. And I know that sounds so cheesy, but I <laughs> kind of don't want to make an apology for it because mm. I feel that for me, uh, although I make some very good decisions and had a wonderful life up until the age of 40, I largely slept walked through it. And and it was only in my 40s that I really woke up to intentional living. At, and I just want to be shouting it from the rooftop. Uh, what a difference it makes. And I think part of the waking up process was strangely enough, part of the thing that at the time was such a source of pain, which was my relationship with alcohol. Mm,
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, And that's what brought us together. I mean, we met virtually, uh, because we met sort of mid pandemic. uh, But we trained, we both trained as transformational coaches at the same coach school, coaching training school. And we met on a group coaching CPD. And I think we sort of, Um, vibed with each other in the breakout groups and and kept in touch but I didn't appreciate at the time that you had um, this backstory around your relationship with alcohol and a lot of the work that you were doing as a coach was to work with women to help them navigate their relationship with alcohol too and it wasn't until probably a month ago uh, maybe even more recently than that Uh, that you shared an article on LinkedIn that you had written about your relationship called I think I'm remembering this correctly alcohol and me yeah me and my frenemy me and my frenemy yeah Yeah. Um, and when I saw that I gasped sort of I can't believe it amazing because I have recently um, gone alcohol free and I've you know, share a little bit more about that um, as we as we go through our conversation. But really, we're here to talk about you. Um, but when I saw that, it just really struck me. You know, I I didn't know that, that 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 was part of your story. It's a part of my story as well. And certainly when I started digging in to find resources and literature and to feel um I suppose you find my identity in seeing other people navigate it as well. A whole world opened up that I hadn't really understood. Gray area drinking being one of them, and I just thought this is a conversation that's really important to me, and I think this is something that we could be talking about um, more openly. And people are talking about it openly in spaces. Um, if you dig. That it's there. uh, But I really wanted to bring this into my platform and to my podcast as well, because it is a big part of my story too. Um, So can you take us to back to the beginning? So where I mean, start wherever you want to start, but I'd really like to understand the kind of genesis of you reaching this point that you wanted to make a change and maybe to give us a little bit of colour or context to what led you there. So where were you what change did you make and what did you experience after that yeah that's that's a that's a great place to start Moni um I think the
1: first thing that I need to say is that there is no dramatic rock bottom for me and I feel really fortunate in that I feel really fortunate that I woke up before there was a dramatic rock bottom because I may well have been heading that way but and one of the reasons why I'm I'm so grateful to be invited on here is I think that rock bottom stories and you know celebrities really struggling and a lot of the um lit I think you've got it don't you uh, literature yeah out there is often centered around a big rock bottom story a big drama or um, you know one of those real alarm bells like drinking in the day or that kind of thing or drinking Mm. in the morning and and or losing everything and none of that happened for me and i just feel really passionate about giving the message that you don't need a rock bottom to get to a stage where if something isn't working in your life why have it in your life and so for me i just there was an increasing period in my kind of late 30s early 40s where after children, you know, I had my babies, I'd happily stopped drinking when they were little and all those sort of really hard early motherhood years. And then it became the kind of new social vibrancy of meeting new people around school and, uh, and new mums and all that kind of stuff. And just increasingly, I noticed that my drinking wasn't working for me. Mm. So I wasn't always drinking more than everybody else, but often I felt like I was. And, you know, the waking up in the early hours just filled with uh call it pistanoia, you know, that feeling of just total paranoia. Hang on a minute. What
0: Pistanoia. Pistanoia.
1: Yeah.
0: Never heard that.
1: Sort of... <laughs> I've heard of anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Basically sort of paranoia about what you've said and done yeah. when you've had too much to drink. I've and... yeah, been there. Yeah. And nothing awful just oversharing and Mm. maybe something and but the biggest impact was on my mental health on how I felt Mm. about myself the next day just really low horrendous hangovers filled with remorse and regret and at the same time that this was this was happening I'd also been put on a kind of self-development reading journey by a good friend who happens to be a coach and the kind of link between what I was reading and I guess the disconnect between what I was reading and what I was actually doing in my life um just became increasingly uncomfortable yeah does that make sense
0: it does and actually there's a point that you made that I really want to underline because it's something that Held me back for a long time, and I've heard it spoken by um, people that I really care about and close friends, um, and they've said the same thing, and I think it's held them back too. And it's this binary that we create that someone with a drinking problem, or someone that needs to stop drinking, um, or someone that's an alcoholic, or whatever labels you want to attach, you know, they're a fall down drunk or then there's the rest of the world. And actually, as I was thinking through this interview, I listed some of the things that held me back in making my decision to to live alcohol free. And you've just given me a good segue to talk about them. One of them is the alcoholic, you know, I'm not an alcoholic. So, you know, it's not that bad. The other is the the language that other people might use like oh well, you weren't that bad what's the problem so other people's voices other people's opinions Ooh. about you know how good or bad you are or your drinking is which also kind of leads to this comparison. You know, we kind of measure our drinking and our how good or bad our drinking is compared to other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. So I don't really have a problem. I'm not a fall down drunk. So I don't really have a problem. There's no rock bottom. So what's the issue? Everybody else is doing it. And some of the other things, and this is more earlier on in my drinking career, I suppose, would be people pleasing, you know, fitting in, oh, um, fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. um it's very much built into the culture or certainly the cultures the the work cultures and the and the social groups that I moved in I've been guilty of and this is a long time ago but I've been guilty of saying you know don't trust someone who doesn't drink (laughs) (laughs) me too yeah Yeah, you know well because they're coherent right and they're, they're they're it's it comes from a place of um, certainly for me anyway, I, I would say that in my early 20s, I wouldn't have said that now as a, a you know, in my early 40s, but it came from a place of you know, probably embarrassment and, and internalized shame. Um, and the other thing that stopped me was self-pity. You know, I have gone alcohol free before, but it was more begrudging. Like, well, why can't I just drink like a normal person? Why do I have to have, you know, that one or two glasses of wine too many? And then I have the anxiety or the, the what was the other thing you said? It's annoying. <laughs> Yeah. You know, yeah. it just kind of like, woe is me self-pity about it. And and now that I've gone alcohol free this time, I don't have any of that. Like I've moved beyond that. And it sounds like this is one of the things I want to un- unpack with you that that what do I want? Who do I want to be and what's getting in the way? And when you realize that one of those things might be alcohol and you want the thing that you want on the other side more, that's when a big change can happen.
1: Yeah you're so right you're so right and it's that 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 truism that when we want change we are either moving away from pain or we're moving towards pleasure and mm-hmm. if it can be both if you can get really clear about why it isn't working the pain point and really clear about what it's holding you back from then you've got both you've got the pressure and the pull but with just one or the other it's it doesn't really work you need, you need you kind of need both well i i found i've needed both you didn't have the the, the kind of rock
0: bottom moment no. but did you have like a moment of clarity did you or was it it was it more gradual or nuanced than that like what was the shift for, for you going from you know drinking a few too many glasses of wine or, or having that um, anxiety to actually removing it from your life it was so many different stages of shift,
1: and I think I that the the time that I actually stopped for the for the first proper length of proper time was two thousand and fourteen. And the reason why I stopped in two thousand and fourteen was because and, and I stopped and started multiple times before that over a sort of four year period beforehand. But in 2014, my favorite hangover cure, the way that I functioned was to go to red hot yoga, (laughs) sweat to towel. In 2014, I had a knee operation and I couldn't. The knee operation followed a a lunchtime, you know, fabulous boozy lunch with friends where I had just overdone it. I remember the shame I felt because in that instance, because we'd been drinking at lunchtime and it had gone on to early evening, the girls had been around and they were old enough to be aware that I wasn't being normal mum mm. and they didn't like it. And I remember talking to my husband about it the next day and just this huge, massive shame and self-hatred and all that kind of stuff. And then sitting on the sofa and but there'd be nowhere to put this toxicity that I felt mm. inside me drove me to to finally reach out to the kind of sober positive sobriety movement and I started blogging and from then onwards that was that was hugely powerful but Monique prior to that the pain point for me actually began really when I started trying to control my drinking when I went from just being completely oblivious and then gradually realizing actually this isn't working and then trying to control it and moderate I had about two miserable years of stopping and starting and trying to moderate and reading all this literature which was kind of working but not really rewiring my brain and and so that that was what
0: yeah does that kind of
1: answer your question?
0: Yeah I mean that is another point the head space and the energy that is given to trying to moderate I mean through the pandemic I had my alcohol free days and I drank actually within, unless I was having like a a dinner with friends or, you know, a barbecue or something like that, which let's face it, didn't happen very often in the last two two years or year and a half. Um, But for the most part, I drank within NHS guidelines. You know, I would probably work my way through a bottle of red wine through the week. For, for some people would be like, well, what's the big deal? Why are you quitting drinking if you're only drinking a, a, a bottle or so? For other people, that might be, wow, you got through a, a bottle of wine in a week. For others, they might get through a bottle of wine or two in a day. It's kind of irrelevant what the quantity is because we're all different and what works for us is different. I think that sort of stuff is... What we're talking about it holds you back comparing to what someone else is having or not. But for me, the constant okay, well I'm gonna have, I'm not gonna drink this night, this night, this night, this night. So I don't drink Mondays, Tuesday, Sundays, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays because I like to be available for clients on a Sunday. And um, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday feels like an okay time. So then I had the two halves of the week, you know, the days when I wasn't drinking and the days when I was and Friday nights I could drink more because it was the end of the week and I didn't have a client the next I mean just the constant Mm. you know logistics (laughs) managing the logistics of it it took up a lot of headspace yeah it's the drinking thinking and it's exhausting Mm. and the
1: constant I don't know about you but the constant bargaining with myself and you know and the whole and, and people don't just do this about drink we do it about food we do, mm-hmm. we do it about exercise anything which is which you're framing in that way of you know you're allowed it and then you're not allowed it and and we're talking about an addictive substance here I also want to say I'm I'm not anti-alcohol I'm not you know my husband drinks like a fish all <laughs> my friends drink like fish you know I'm not anti-alcohol I'm just anti-alcohol for me you're so right giving up the comparison thing it's So important because you can always find somebody who's more drunk than you who's got a worse problem than you and you can always find people who seem to be it doesn't affect them at all you know and ultimately it's just working out what suits you and trying to live your life in a way that
0: supports your best you Mm I'm 52 51 days alcohol free so I'm very very early in this this journey But this feels very different to times previously when I have, I've gone alcohol free for a year before and I hated every minute of it. I did it begrudgingly. I did it filled with, why can't I just moderate? I'll reset my relationship with alcohol and then I'll drink again and it'll just be moderate and I'll just be a normal, you know, I'll have a normal relationship with alcohol, be a normal drinker. That's a slippery slope back to it not working for me again. So I was talking to a friend really, really early on um, in um, in this stage. We both have alcoholism in our families. And I said to her, you know, actually, I think if I'm honest, my relationship with alcohol has always been high stakes. It's never been a low stakes relationship for me. And that was really predetermined. And I'm not talking about genetics. I'm talking about the fact that there's alcoholism in my family and that carries with it some pain. There's a story or lots of stories around that and around alcohol and the role that it played in our family's history that I, you know, I have known my entire life. It was always going to be, um, for me personally, it was always going to be high stakes. It was never something that felt light and breezy. I remember when I was growing up, I had one friend who said to me, why do you have this Catholic guilt? Like you've got this, you're not religious. Like I didn't grow up in a religious home, um, you know, really progressive house, really progressive mum. I had this Catholic guilt and now that I look back, that's sort of 20 years ago, it was this what I think I understand now to be cognitive dissonance, but this separation between who I felt I was and what I was here for versus how I was showing up and what I was doing. There was a real disconnect. And I've described it before as this pendulum between the two sort of halves of myself or the multitudes of myself, and over time that pendulum swing has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller as I integrate all of the different parts of me into one. And so that voice, that sort of intuition, if you want to call it that, was saying to me, you're not going to create all that it is you want to create until you stop drinking entirely. And the reducing my drinking down to, you know, a bottle of wine a week and not going out every every weekend and um, and overdoing it was kind of not the point. It was kind of not the point at all, it was getting rid of it entirely for me. Yeah, I, you, you've covered so many important points there. I mean, first of all, I love
1: that framing of a high stakes relationship Mm. I think that's so much more useful than the framing of normal or not normal drinker Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. alcoholic or any of those things and secondly you touched on the you know what is it that causes some people to have a high stakes relationship with alcohol and some people not to and and I find that all fascinating. But the more I've read, the more I've realized there are no straightforward answers.
0: Yeah. When it
1: comes to why people become psychologically addicted or disorder drinking or whatever way you want to look at it. And as you say, ultimately, kind of it's not the point. The point is, is it a net benefit in your life or not? And for me, I've come to the conclusion it isn't. And I see a lot of people around me, or hear a lot of of people who feel that way too, but are, I think, held back from seeking help because we live in an alcohol saturated society. And because a lot of us have grown up with the the normal, natural way to be an adult and to have fun as an adult is to drink. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) scary to think that that might not be your way of having fun but yeah. I guess there's, there's that going on too but then you also touched on the it sounds to me like you have arrived at a 100 percent positive decision and commitment and therefore there is no discussion there is no cognitive distance there is no brain chatter and when that goes away it's such a bloody relief is oh. it because- it's exhausting
0: yeah it was honestly Izzy it was for me it was a a moment of clarity and I've said these words a million times before and I'm sure other people have as well certainly if you were drawn to this episode (laughs) you probably said this to yourself the amount of times in my 20s I woke up and said that's it I'm never drinking again you know this big sort of declaration and of course Mm -hmm. you know if that was a Friday I'd be out the next night on a Saturday doing it all over again but this time I just I said to my husband I'm not drinking again And he went, okay because, I mean, he couldn't care less. His relationship with alcohol is low stakes. He does drink. Sometimes he drinks to excess. Um, He's quite funny when he does. But his relationship with alcohol is pretty low stakes. You know, he doesn't he doesn't it doesn't take up a lot of headspace. He's not tracking alcohol free days or is he living in a or None of that stuff. He's just very transactional. Matter of fact, can take it or leave it. Doesn't care if I drink, doesn't care if I don't. But I sort of said to him, I'm not drinking again. And he went, okay. And I said, no, I I really am not. And he went, okay. (laughs) And I didn't feel the need to sort of say it again, like to convince him because it felt really light. Like it wasn't a heavy, regretful declaration. It was a knowing kind of deep in my bones that I was moving to the other side of that. Um, And it felt very clarifying, very light and, and I felt very sure and certain, but without the, the weightiness of forever. If that, does that make sense? It makes total sense. It makes total sense. And two things
1: that come up for me from that, well, one is that, and I can't remember, I've read so much um, <laughs> quick that I can't <laughs> remember where I read it, certainly not my thought, but the, the difference between 99% and 100% is huge. Mm. because 99% you've still got that little inkling of of reasoning and rationalization of yourself and debate but 100% there is no more noise
0: yeah and that
1: that is that and that is a decision isn't it that's a decision and that's huge mm. and then the other thing that came up for me is this um it has now left me <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, no, it's about it's about when you're totally in alignment with yeah. what you're doing. And for me, I guess there were three stages to my thinking about this, which are not new. They're just, just my journey I, everyone's journey is different. But at the beginning, it was that realization that mindset was everything and that staying in a mindset of choice was mm. everything. So this pity party you talk about, yeah. you know, like you, I've done, you know, many, many times of saying that's it. I've had enough now. And all the realizations of I'm not living my best life, all that kind of stuff, they were still there. But my approach was, woe is me. I can't. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to, you know, it's the way I'm wired, you know, real woe is me stuff. And then the whole, the shift the reframing is so powerful that NLP stuff of ownership and choice and all of that I think that is absolutely key getting and staying in a mindset of choice and in my kind of early days of, of not drinking of living alcohol free or embracing sobriety however you want to put it it was all about I realized very soon that the work wasn't not pouring myself a glass of wine. The work was staying in a place of choice. Because the moment I started to have a pity party was the moment that was where I was having to use self-control. And of course, you soon run out of self-control. Mm. And, and the, But it does take work to stay in that mindset of choice because we do live in a society. And I, I like you, I'm surrounded by people who have low stakes relationships with alcohol, who love alcohol, and therefore staying in a no, I'm choosing not to do this rather than I can't took work initially. Yeah, in the early stage, that was the work.
0: Let, but me, it pause feel that like that. Let me pause on the point. Let me pause on the mindset of choice piece for a minute because I think this is an interesting one. Mm. You said that you had three three stages that you went through, and the first one being mindset of or staying in a mindset of choice. So I wonder to what extent that mindset of choice journey, for want of a less naff term, um, (laughs) the kind of the when the drinking stops is kind of arbitrary. Because for me, uh, my mindset of choice, I am in a mindset of choice, I choose not to drink. In fact, I have a healthier relationship with alcohol now in my 40s than I did in my late teens, 20s, and, and probably 30s too. But that journey to the the stopping drinking I haven't actually had to have any additional work yet each day I'm sort of thinking about how I feel and am I having any sort of triggers to drink it's it's been really really easy for me there haven't been cravings there haven't been things that I've had to manage or navigate in the very first week there may have been or second week there may have been like a, a, a moment or two at 6 p.m on a Thursday where it's like, oh, oh, but it was just kind of habitual and Mm. easily overcome. It wasn't anything that required additional work. And the reason that I'm saying that is not to say, oh, look at me, I did it and I haven't had to do any work, but I think the work was happening before I stopped. I woke up that day and went, I'm not going to drink anymore. So that mindset of choice isn't something that starts post putting down the last drink, right?
1: No, I think it's it you're right, I think it starts with people at, at different points. I think mm. for me, getting to that mindset of choice took time and, and, and was impacted by what I was reading, et cetera. But also the fact that you, Monique, are a, a, a very self-aware person with high self-efficacy, who's done a lot of reading around personal mm. development, all of that thinking will just be part of the very fibre of who you are. Whereas me 10 years ago, I, I wasn't there yet. You know, it was, that was, I hate, how often do we have to use this journey metaphor? But it sort of works, doesn't it? But yeah, so, and and again, I'm not saying work as in hard work. It meaning, but things like when life events happen. So, you know, for the first few months of that time when I was on the sofa and I started blogging, the work was the blogging. You know it didn't feel like work it felt like the biggest joy ever that I was writing about this stuff and people were reading it and I was reading their blogs and it was so supportive and we were all in the same place and everybody was feeling the same things and it was amazing <laughs> it was such a supportive community it was fantastic So, because I love writing anyway that just felt like a joy that didn't feel like work but it was when things happened, from the small things such as it's Christmas and Mm-hmm. What we do at Christmas is we have a glass of delicious champagne. And there's no hangover within that one glass of champagne. There's no pain necessarily. Mm-hmm. But again, still going, No, I'm choosing yes. to not, you know, and because because I am freer, I'm better off without it sort of yes. language around. It. But then I also I lost my dad in a very sudden and dramatic and horrendous car accident, which left my um, mum crippled and really badly injured and in um, intensive care. And and keeping my choice not to drink Mm. around that was huge for me, really, really huge. And I remember this friend, this dear friend who had listened to me bang on about alcohol for about five years. And I remember ringing her up, and she had lost her daughter um, a few years before to cancer, so she knew about grief. And I remember ringing her up and asking her two things, one of which was just ridiculous, well, both of which were ridiculous, one of which was, what, what are the stages of grief? Because I want to know what stage I'm at now, because it doesn't feel good, and I want to know how long it's going to last. And of course, that's ludicrous question, but anyway. And the other question was, I want to drink. I want to open my mouth and pour a bottle of red wine down my throat so I can just numb this pain. Why can't I drink? Tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And her saying to me, Izzy, the answer is in you. You know the answer. And it was just the words I needed to hear. I needed someone to say to me, you, 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 you. It's not that you're not drinking because it's better for your children it's not that you're not drinking because you'll be a more supportive sibling or you'll be there for your mum or any of that stuff
0: it was about me Mm. and it's and that puts you in your in your power it's empowering it's 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 taking you out of the why can't I why can't I you know pity party and I mean I have not experienced that kind of grief but I can imagine it is pain that is so visceral that you desperately need an anesthetic. And, you know, red wine is a great anesthetic. Um, It's a bandage or bandaid certainly just makes the wound worse when you peel (laughs) the bandaid off. Um, But what, what great advice to get at that time to just put you back in your position of power. Yeah.
1: And you know, when people just sometimes people just have the words, don't they? And They're so grateful when they do, because I don't even know if she realized how powerful those words were and why I needed those words, but I really did. And then it wasn't, you know, for me, it wasn't like that was then the job done. So I I didn't drink for the whole of that year. And then after that, I occasionally dabbled. You know, and very occasionally, I still do. Very occasionally, increasingly, rarely. And when I do, maybe even just one glass. So it's not that alcohol remains a problem for me. It really, really doesn't. It's just that knowing that every time I do drink, or if I was to continue to drink, it starts voting
0: against the identity that feels very powerful and strong to me, and that now works for me. When you were talking before about this sort of continuum of mindset of choice, And I described the pendulum swing and then Mm -hmm. integrating all of the different bits of myself. The reason that it's become very clean and simple and easy is because it's very much in line with who I see myself as, how I see my life, what I value, what I prioritize, how I want to spend my days, you know, what's most important to me. That all is supported and reinforced and uplifted by removing alcohol from my life. I just don't have to waste any time thinking about if I will be tired or if I will feel 100% or if I'm having an alcohol-free day or whatever. It's all lining up for me now, who I think I am, how I see myself, how I see my life and how I actually am living all aspects of my life it all fits together and makes sense I'm not out I don't even really like to say out of alignment because I think it's one of those sort of you know turns of phrase that sounds a bit naff and can kind of turn people up a bit but for want of again a better phrase like I I feel aligned like I'm in integrity with who I am and how I want to live yeah yeah you're so right and and again
1: I think you've because of who you are and and, and your uh, and, and your profession mm. you've, you you are very aware of your purpose and your values and your strengths and, and living into yeah. all of that and right that was my second realization it, the kind of baskets they fall into is one is that the mindset of choice and the language the second is the it no longer being about alcohol the alcohol being just a sideshow and becoming a tool. Of one of many tools in my toolkit that enables me to live my best life, which again, <laughs> another, oh.
0: another turn of phrase we love <laughs> little and living our best life and it's being so in a <laughs> but
1: there we go. But yeah, I mean, and, and once I kind of stumbled across the work of Simon Sinek and James Clear and all that stuff on your identity, your why being at, at the core of it, then it was just this whole other ease that came into it because I wasn't having to work so hard mentally to stay in a mindset of choice around alcohol because I was fighting for my not fighting I was working with my my identity to give a little bit of context to this I've always been driven by I'm I'm an RS teacher by religious studies teacher by um by trade before this and read theology at university and the reason why I did all of that and loved my teaching career is because I was absolutely horrified when I realized that we're all going to die and I wanted answers, you know, I wanted to know is there a God and if so what's he going to do about the fact we're all going to die and I'm going to die? I mean God! That's kind of been my philosophy, you know, and the kind of search for meaning has been kind of my drive. And then in my 40s, it became less about what happens at the end of life and more about realising, hang on a second, this is my one life, probably. Mm. And and I really want to get the most out of it. And I want to find out what I'm supposed to be doing here and have an impact. So, so, you know, there is some real depth to that quest to live my best life. It's something that I've been struggling to find the answers to or seeking for the answers to forever. And what I've found so so intellectually satisfying is that all these philosophers who I've held up, both Eastern and Western philosophy, as hugely intelligent, amazing individuals, their their insights into the human condition... Are being borne out by the findings of neuroscience. You know, there is proof that these incredibly wise people had it so right. There's now scientific proof through MRI scanning of our brains except gotten why I started off on this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let oh, me take you it. back. You were talking about identity. identity and at a high level, it sounds like your identity previously was a kind of where are we heading to and what's the point and am I yeah. going to die? And then it shifted to... Let's put that. Let's park that for a minute, and actually, what's going on for me right now, and how can I, rather than worrying about what's the point of it all, yeah. what's the point of right now, and 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 how can I get the best out of my present? Absolutely, and living intentionally, and I guess
1: focusing more on that. You know that, but I can't control whether there's anything beyond this life. Yeah, I can't. I don't believe I can know actually in this life whether there's anything beyond this life I'm an optimistic agnostic but there we go but what I can do is maximize this life and I absolutely love that um Mary Oliver poem do you know the one where it ends with uh tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life and that for me still kind of hits me here and so then I started to dig into my my strengths and my values and you know what a big one for me is love of learning and another big one for me is is love yeah. and and I can't be this wisdom seeking loving person when I'm filled with remorse and feeling rubbish and depressed and with a you know eating my way to the hangover you know in order to be to be me I'm I am best off with Alcohol free. So it becomes a tool along with exercise, along yeah. with meditation, along with gratitude. They are all tools in my
0: in my kit. So one is mindset of choice. Yeah. Two is it's no longer about alcohol. Alcohol is not the lead character. It's a tool. You're the lead character. And it, living alcohol free is a tool of many. That starts to using my language of stakes that lowers the stakes. It kind yeah. of reduces its magnitude it just becomes this you know smaller thing and so what's yeah. the third sort of big realization that you had yeah the third
1: i guess is building your self-command muscle through mental fitness so this particular system i use and that's been so impactful for me it has been developed by shazad shamin at positive intelligence and it's this method of just basically engaging your self-command So that you can more easily, because we are all triggered. You know, I I still get triggered, whether it's to do with alcohol or whether it's to do with, you know, not exercising, whatever. You know, but our monkey minds take us all over the place and triggers from all sorts of different places. Mm. And I, my particular form of self sabotage is pleaser and perfectionist and all that kind of stuff. And in order to kind of engage my my best self more frequently. You can, you can build up the ability to do that and engage your self-command muscle.
0: What is self-command? Command? I've not heard that term. I mean, I can, I can mm. you know, obviously intellectually, I can understand what you mean by self-command, yeah. but in that context, what is the sort of definition of self-command or your self-command muscle?
1: Well, I guess it's kind of easy to define it about what it's not. So it's not self-control. So self-control for me is about fighting with what you want. It's a kind of a struggle and it's, it's effortful. Whereas self-command is, I guess, being in your prefrontal cortex, mostly. Mm-hmm. being in that part of your brain, being driven by what you really want, by what you best you want, mm-hmm. rather than you triggered in that moment who suddenly wants something that you actually don't want. So it's the you of the next day, or it's the you of <laughs> five minutes later, once the blood has left your kind of limbic system and yeah. it's gone back to your prefront it do you know that does that make like sense the
0: higher or it's it's you yeah. in a state of your highest authority it's almost yes. like you as the leader rather than you as the manager yes mm. that's exactly it
1: so that you take control over your brain rather than the strong emotional or feeling or mm. thought that you're having which shows up like with this sense of urgency which shows up as truth and because the blood's in that part of your brain, it feels like that way, but it actually isn't.
0: That's such an important point, and certainly not when it not just in um, in relationship with alcohol, but in all of our experiences. One of the things that I encourage my clients to do, and you know, this is nothing new. This is what anybody working in the coaching and therapeutic space um, does, is to just pay attention, to just be aware, and to not. Believe that our thoughts are reality, that our inner critic, um, or it's been described as shitty committee, inner voice—you know, whatever you want to call it—some people give it a name. Um, you know, they're not speaking truth, and your body's reaction is not necessarily—it's it could be reacting in a in a in a fight or flight response, trying to keep you safe from, you know, the tigers that may have come thousands of years ago but just staying in that state of awareness and letting that moment pass being the you of the five minutes later post trigger post craving or post you know post stimulus and then moving forward because it's usually just a couple of moments Mm. of paying attention is all you need that's exactly it and that is all this is it's
1: just a system Mm. of building that attention muscle mm. and and, and, quite, and a really powerful way of way of, of doing that because it is a it is a muscle and you can get better at it over time so mm. that has really in the last year yeah. and, and as I say it's not it, for me that hasn't necessarily just been about alcohol it's been about absolutely every area of of my, of my life and the system has been developed for every area of life
0: it's just interesting that kind of the, the the layers of the mindset of choice, the no longer being about alcohol and the self-building yourself self-command muscle in that sort of those three realizations that you went through, and I'm sure there were more and there was lots of sub, sub-headed realizations oh within God. that as well. But the alcohol gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. It just kind of disappears. Okay, so if you were speaking, so you work with women helping them to improve their relationship with alcohol what do you see in a lot of the women that are coming to work with you what are some of the commonalities that you see that can hold them back from making that change
1: a a lot of comparison Mm. um, both up and down yeah Um, a lot of sorry can I
0: pause you there the comparison up and down that's huge that's huge. The comparison up being, well, I'm not as bad as that person, so I'm fine. The comparison mm. down being, um, why can't I just drink like a normal person? Both of who, both of those, you know, scenarios separating mm. you from yourself and what's going on for you. That's fascinating. Comparing up and comparing down. Yeah, yeah, and stuck in
1: the the, the 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 trap is, I'm miserable drinking. But I'm miserable at the thought of not drinking, mm. and I guess it's it's when, as I always say, I can't tell anybody what their end relationship of with alcohol should be, or you know, for some people maybe they can reach a, a place of happy moderation, uh, maybe for and that moderation is going to look differently. For different people maybe alcohol becomes so small in their picture that they can take it or leave it which is largely what I can do now you know um, I just choose to leave it because most of the time but but maybe it won't be what I believe that I can give people is or walk through with people is that journey up the self-efficacy ownership ladder of I can do something about this and the ownership of the mindset of choice, but driven by purpose, and then the self-command stuff just helps bring you back to your purpose and mm-hmm. to your mindset of choice when you're triggered. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. It does. And the thing there that I can relate to my own work and my context, my sphere, my area of interest is in the world of work and careers and the role that careers play in our life and how we can integrate. Well, we should integrate our work and our careers into our whole life rather than it being this separate thing that can detract from the quality of life outside of work um, and and so on and so forth and certainly, the relationship that I have with alcohol and that's re- that relationship with my career you know it's it's pretty intrinsically linked if I'm thinking of well I won't have a client on that day because I've got the dinner the night before there's a direct correlation between my my you know my glass of red wine or two and my client call 9am on a Sunday morning um I suppose the the the, the point that I, I think is really, really interesting across the work that you do and the work that I do is neither focuses on the endpoint. A lot of people come and work with me and they are fixated on, well, what should they change their careers to? What job should they do next? What should they choose to retrain in? Help me understand exactly what the endpoint's going to be. And actually that's kind of irrelevant. It's, of course it's important. It's important to future you, but that will all unfold as it is meant to. The most important thing is what's going on right now and kind of unpacking all of that stuff and reconnecting them to themselves. And also empowering them, you know, getting them back into that sense of power. So, the mindset of choice that you talk about um, with alcohol in the workplace, that can look like having some boundaries, you know, choosing to prioritize the things that they need to feel well, whether that be exercise, more time with their family, more autonomy over their work. When they can get clear about that kind of stuff, and when they can get clear about, the way that alcohol is showing up in their life and the way that they would like it to or not, the end point is is kind of the least important aspect of that. Yeah.
1: And that's why, you know, the whole day thing, you know, the whole counting the days can be really helpful when it is a a joyful, Mm. um, where you're at, a joyful, Mm. well done me. But it can be really unhelpful if a blitz comes along. Yeah. And it's, okay, what, well, am I back to the beginning now? Yeah. That's really depressing because I had, you know, 80 days under my belt. I've got to go back to day one.
0: Yeah. And
1: and again, that's where I think the whole, it's going to be different for different people, you know, and it's, it's so about your
0: the language that you use around these things. I completely agree with you because the, the counting thing I find interesting because i agree hmm. with you you know life is a continuum our experience is a continuum um and we don't go back to zero the language of going back to zero is kind of uncomfortable for me too um and i don't even really know why i'm counting because i do have this sense of this is just how i live now um is the number important the way that it helps me i think because i was saying earlier in our conversation yeah. You know, it feels really easy for me. I hope I didn't sound glib when I said that, but it feels They're kind of sure. easy and I don't have to, you know, do a lot of work around, um, you know, this, that or the other to fight cravings or whatever. I, I don't necessarily feel that I have those. However, upon saying that, if I'm really honest, well, I'm tracking Every day, I'm making a commitment every day to live that day alcohol free. That is staying in with in my intention. It's setting that intention at the start of each day and wrapping that up at the end of each day. So that is an external marker of my yeah. commitment um, and success. If you want to use that language, but I probably think that's quite unhelpful. It's, it's not really about that. Um, and then the other thing is going back to the point you were making about identity. I felt um, really supported and assured by a lot of the work that I was able to access, the writing that I was able to access. And while I didn't relate to a lot of it in terms of the rock bottom and the app that I follow, a lot of the people that that are on there and sharing are really, really struggling um, to stay alcohol-free. And my hat goes off to people that, that are able to share. I'm a massive lurker on these sorts of forums. I'm there, but I'm not sharing. Um, you know, I don't necessarily relate to their experience, but that's cool because I'm having my experience and I feel like I'm a part of a broader community.
1: The counting days is a positive.
0: Mm. If, that is mm. a,
1: if that's giving you a tick, yeah. you know, it's fabulous. We all want ticks. I think ticks are great. Little happy, smiley faces are well done. Us. It's it's only a negative when we use them as sticks to beat ourselves up with afterwards. Yes. Which is what I did. So I would yeah. do however many days and then have a blip and then be that blip instead of being oh great a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know I can learn from this. I, I would take that on board and I would yeah. see it as a learning opportunity. But I would also see it as a failure and. Failure is not, when you frame things as failure, that's not motivating. Well, it wasn't motivating
0: for me. You sound like you're holding it lightly. Holding it lightly is a really nice, nice turn of phrase. And I think on on that note, I kind of want to underline the point. I'm sharing this on my platform. I'm a transformational coach. I am not a therapist. I'm certainly not trained in alcohol recovery. This conversation is not professional advice on how you should or shouldn't navigate your relationship it's just sharing and I am able to navigate this with ease and lightly and hold it lightly now there have been times in my past when it would have felt really heavy um, and I wouldn't have able to I wouldn't have been able to hold it so lightly and navigate it with ease and it is as you alluded to before, is the result of a lot of the work that I've been doing personally and professionally in the last two years Um yeah. as well.
1: Yeah, and, and thank you for raising that because I also am not trained in addiction therapy. And my understanding is that if somebody is physically addicted to alcohol, mm. they really need the support of their yeah. GP's. Uh, I believe I can really help women who... I'm not physically addicted, but still feel trapped. Still feel trapped in this, I'm unhappy when I do, and I'm unhappy when I don't.
0: So what would the first, uh, this might be a a really um, reductive question, (laughs) but what would you say is the first thing that someone can ask themselves or thing that someone could do if they find themselves listening to this and going, that sounds like me that's a really good
1: question and i don't i don't think it's productive actually because i think the first thing we all need whether it's to do with our careers or our anything in our life which is feeling uncomfortable is to get clarity and so i I've, I've developed a resource which is on my on my website and people can just go and have a look there's a, a written part but there's also an audio that goes that goes with it we should help people get clarity on where they are on the kind of ownership ladder are they in denial and blame and excuses and waiting for it to go away and if they are fine but what impact is that having having on their wellness their well-being and their happiness and their relationships and their productivity and just being really honest or are they a little bit further up the ownership ladder? Are they? Do they realise this is, isn't a positive in their lives? But they're unsure. They're at the solution-seeking stage. Mm. Or are they actually really ready to take action? And again, what they, what whatever stage they're at, what impact that is having on their well-being, their relationships, and their productivity? So just okay. getting real
0: clarity on where they are to begin with. Going back to that point, you know, just stopping and seeing where you are. People are at the start of this. I think that there's a case for being quite private about it. Um, Certainly in my experience in the past when I've gone alcohol-free and and more recently as well, (laughs) when you share that you are alcohol-free, it invites a plethora of commentary from other people who are telling you why they don't go alcohol-free because they don't have a problem or... (laughs) Or are you really sure this is going to be what you, are you really, are you, is this sticking then? This isn't just something that like I've I've had comments. I mean, they haven't been, there haven't been lots of comments and I don't know if that's just because of the nature of the world at the moment, I'm not in contact with as many people and I'm not sharing as, um, as frequently that I'm not drinking. I'm not in social situations all the time where I'm not drinking. So it's not coming up as it once may have in the past, but I think that there is certainly something to be said for the impact that your decision to go alcohol free will have on other people and the the natural desire of other people to therefore share why they don't. I have seen a lot of that and I've seen it again this time um, Mm -hmm. as well. And I think for me personally, because I'm treating it lightly and with ease, it's mostly been okay, but there's probably within that, the lightness and ease there's still some work that I need to do because there's deep-seated right at the core of it there's some deep-seated shame and regret for not doing it sooner or you know there's still some stuff that I'll need to unpack and that is the kind of stuff that I would unpack with a therapist um, or, or perhaps some just sort of self-reflection but I'm able to navigate that um, involvement and insertion of other people and their stories quite comfortably because I'm coming from a place of certainty and and self-awareness and self-honesty in the past that would have been extremely triggering for me because it would have automatically placed me in that place of comparison comparing up or comparing down which is disempowering and can make you feel uh you know embarrassed shamed judged um or maybe i'm not so bad maybe i should just drink again or oh i am really bad you know woe is me how how shameful um so i just wondered if you'd had experience with that if your clients have had experience with that and what your thoughts are in terms of the comments of others the insertion of other people and their lack of a drinking problem or whatever it may be and how how is a safe way to navigate that in the early stages for yourself yeah, I, I think there's so, oh, there's so much what you said there that I recognise. Yeah, I mean, I've been
1: incredibly lucky. I've had really supportive friends, really supportive um, people around me. But also, I think everyone was just relieved when I shut up about it because <laughs> I had years, you know, because I'm very much kind of hot on my sleeve. Mm. And, and my years of drinking, thinking and giving up and stopping and starting and all that that painful two or three years, Everybody heard about it. <laughs> when I finally sorted myself out. I think they were just like, oh my god, she stopped whinging But um yeah, in terms of other people, my 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 clients have different experiences. I think it's very unique to everybody. So I guess knowing what works for you, but also knowing the people around you. So you're not gonna have everybody greeting your decision. With great joy, because there will be some people. Probably, some it may be that there are people around you that are also struggling, but they haven't quite admitted it to themselves yet, and therefore they need to defend their position. And you might well, therefore, be triggered and sabotaged. But they might not even be meaning to sabotage. It's not a conscious thing. You have to be careful that you're not inviting that into your life. Yeah. yeah. But I guess it's going to be it's going to be so
0: individual, isn't it? How much people are comfortable sharing, how much they're not and who's around them. So it goes back to just being aware, paying attention, holding yourself with real reverence and care. Yeah. And as you say, the whole paying attention, paying attention to the
1: fact that that what you're doing is the biggest act of self-love to really look at what is serving you or not serving you in your life. And whether that's to do with alcohol or career or whatever it's to do with. And I'm now a big convert to self-love. As human beings, we are emotionally contagious. If we love ourselves and are filled with self-love and joy, that is the emotional contagion we give out to others. And it just grows and grows and grows. So the best thing you can do for yourself is a bit of self-love.
0: And it's the best thing you can do for others as well. I love that. Okay, we're coming to the end. I mean, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and hours. I'm sure we'll have many more conversations offline on this topic as well. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you, and I'm going to put you on the spot here, and I I kind of apologize, kind of apologize in advance because I'm apologizing in advance, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could give some advice, guidance, reassurance to the Izzy who was in it all those years ago, what would you say to her now? Because there may be someone for whom they are feeling like you did at that point.
1: Would you mind doing that? No, that's a really beautiful question. Kind of makes me want to cry. But um, I think I would say to her what my friend said to me is that the answer is in you. You, you have the key. You're, you're standing in a room that you think is locked, but you've got the key
0: use that key it's reminding me of a 90s song we'll know it if you know it um okay well um have you got anything that you would like to I'm going to link to your website and your program as well all of the stuff that you do I'm going to share links to that in the show notes Mm -hmm. but if is there anything in particular in particular you would like to highlight or share I think we've covered
1: I just said there are some free resources on my website to so go and have a look, and there's no obligation to jump in and do anything with me, but just go and see if they're helpful
0: well thank you so well, much Izzy. You. <laughs> it's been such a joy chatting to you i've often during this conversation i've forgotten that we're recording a podcast it's just been a real joy <laughs> to talk to you and to hear your story and to to unpack mine as we go as well and i hope that it has helped people i'm sure that it has and i really appreciate your honesty and your generosity well yours too monique and thank you so much for inviting me on and and so you know
1: being brave and sharing this because there is no shame actually that is my last point there is no shame and I would love to get a stage you know increasingly now we're talking about mental health openly and there used to be all this shame attached to mental health mm-hmm. and there isn't now or increasingly that is becoming a more an easier thing and I I, I want to get to that stage with with alcohol where it's not cloaked in these dark shame effects Actually, you're just trying to work out what works for you and what doesn't work for you. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. I I 100% agree. the The shame thing is one of the things that holds us back. And I would love yeah. to reach a point where we can talk, hold it lightly, hold it with ease. I think it would help a lot of people to move past and to heal. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for this. My pleasure. You take care. I'll speak to you okay. soon okay okay (laughs) bye The Rewriters is produced written and presented by Monique Shaw original artwork by Kiana Perry and original music by DJ Cinnamon